So I had interviewed some people from outside of the church. Either they were people who um, used to be heavily involved in church and no longer are, or they've nev never professed to be churched people. And I just asked them a simple question. I asked, what do you think of when you hear the word church? And the answers that I got were things like hypocrisy, racism, sexism, exclusion, homophobia, like all these things. And I wasn't necessarily surprised by some of the answers I got. What surprised me, however, was the degree of hurt that I felt from these people um, that came out in their stories through tears and through anger and through frustration. And for people I didn't meet with in person, like long emails. I was expecting like a sentence or two, and I got essays from these people. So as a result, what we did um, for our series is we went to Acts chapter 2, and we spent four weeks just examining why the church was created and what it was actually commissioned to do. And it was great, and those messages are on the YouTube page. Oh, I forgot about my mask. Thank you. My, my wife is back there like, take your mask off, because last time I forgot. So thank you so much. I would have forgot again. Um, so you can find those messages on the YouTube page or on, the, on our website, on um, our podcasts. And I think they were really good and helpful. But I also think that as long as the church is in existence, and especially for as long as people are being hurt by the church at large, that this idea of pressing deeper, maybe even uncomfortably so, into what the church is supposed to be, is something that we have to keep examining like over and over and over again, lest we lose sight of it. This is why we're gonna spend some time in this new series that we have creatively titled, What the Heck is the Church 2.0. Um, and in the next four weeks, we're gonna take a deeper look into what the church was designed for, how the church can still be instrumental in partnering in and maybe even leading the way in how we live out the gospel. And if you know me, I mean, I've been on the fence about institutional religion for a little bit now, um, especially after those interviews and those conversations I had last year. So this series is as much for me as it is for anyone else so that I can wrestle with this like, whole idea of church alongside you, alongside of community. And I really appreciate that you allow the space for me to do that with you. So today we're going to kick off this series with an examination of power, power in the hands of the church, because this is one thing that if we look at the church as a whole in the United States, it's undeniable that the institution of the church, particularly the white evangelical church, holds a great deal of power. And it's also undeniable that power often corrupts. The abuse or misuse of power in the context of church that sometimes is excused or sometimes it's shoved like under the rug or shoved aside because it's used to protect the institution or protect its leaders or its political aspirations, even at the expense of those who may have suffered trauma in its wake. And I want to be clear, really clear on something. Institutional power and abusive control is not something that I see here in our context of church at One Life City. I appreciate and I really value the shared responsibilities and diversity of our leaders, of our staff, and our community. But I think that we all have to grapple with the idea of holding on to power. Whether we're in formal leadership or not, because of the ways that we, the ways that we deal with power or hold on to power or let go of power, those things matter. Humans have always been obsessed with power. Like, think about history class when you were in school, when we were still in school, but think about the history class and all the empires and civilizations we learned about. What were the two things that those empires were always after? It was always wealth and power, right? Always. And this goes back to the beginning of humanity, as we find out about it through Torah. Like, the Hebrew people in the Genesis story of creation, 
What was the downfall of humanity? It was that humans couldn't resist the allure of power. Like, we want to make the decisions about what's good and evil. And then there's like countless examples all through the Old Testament of this like reaching and grasping for power. I think of like the Tower of Babel, when people are going to try to build bricks to make up an empire so they could rule over other people. I think about 1 Samuel, when the people came to Samuel and they're like, hey man, we want a king. Because they looked around at all of the powerful nations around them and they all had kings. Like if we're going to have some power and we're going to rule over people, we need a king. And of course we know what happens, they got kings that were a lot of kings that made some really bad decisions and put the people in some really messy situations. And this idea of having power over others was totally reinforced by the religions of the empires that ruled over and dominated the Hebrew people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Think about what we know about the gods and goddesses of Egypt and Babylonia and Persia, or Babylonia, Babylon, <laughs> Persia, Greece, Rome, right? All of these goddesses and gods were depicted as powerful deities. Usually like weapons they were holding, like swords or scepters, or think about Zeus, Zeus with his lightning bolt who's ready just to like strike at anyone who doesn't appease him, right? These gods were violent, they were punitive, they were retributive, and they held the power to destroy humans at any moment. And if the gods are violent and punitive and retributive, it begets a people who are violent and retributive and punitive with their power. But God's message to his people during this whole period, from the time they're rescued out of Egypt, is what? It's like, you are a different type of people. You are set apart. Do not be like the Egyptians. This God that rescued you is not like any of the other gods. Now, I'm not trying to say that the true God, the God of Abraham, our God, is not powerful. That's not it. There are plenty of examples of God's display, or God's power on display all throughout the Old Testament. What I'm saying is that it was probably difficult for these people to comprehend a God that's operating out of love rather than a God that's always threatening and ready to swing a sword or hurl that lightning bolt. And it's precisely why God tells the people through Moses in Exodus, in Exodus 20, do not make an idol. <laughs> do not carve an image of me. And why not? Why not carve an image? because they will surely carve an image of a God that will not accurately depict this God. God didn't want the people to make him out to be like all the other gods because he wasn't like all the other gods. It's kind of funny, in my mind, it must have created some awkward situations for like Hebrew exiles in Babylon or something. Like imagine, imagine walking down a Babylonian road with your Babylonian buddy, and you're passing by all these temples, and all the temples of all these different gods and goddesses, and they all have like images or idols of the gods, and, and he's like, hey man, how many gods do you have? <laughs> he's like, just one. <laughs> like, really? Just one? You're like, yeah, just one god. What does he look like? I don't know. Like, it must have, it must have like, felt kind of inferior, right? Because when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and he addresses the people in that speech, he says that Yahweh dwells in thick darkness. And a lot of scholars have dealt with that in a lot of different ways, but I really think that he's just saying, you're not going to find an image of God in here, in this temple. Because we don't know what he looks like. He dwells in thick darkness. No, they, they didn't have an image of God. What they did have was the word of God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw him, we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is the same as God, and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When Jesus enters the narrative, we finally get to see what God is like. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.15, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And as one scholar puts it, Jesus is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. You want to know what God is like? Here he is. He puts on flesh. God enters into all the messiness of humanity to definitively show us what he is like. And just like he tried to tell the people through the prophets and through the law for centuries, he puts on full display that he's not like the pagan gods. Is he powerful? Yes, he is. He's supremely powerful. He's going to enter into death itself and destroy it from the inside once and for all so that we no longer have to fear it. So yes, he's powerful, but he employs that power very differently from those who control the institutions of earthly power. Even his birth gives us a clue about this. Like, where is Jesus born? Right? Where the cows and the animals eat and sleep and poop. And where is, he's, where is he raised? He's raised in like the dirty part of Galilee. Do you remember what the, what the disciple Nathaniel says when he hears where Jesus is from? He's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And who, who gets the proclamation when Jesus is born? Who's the first one to hear about it? Like the lowly shepherds on the bottom of society. This God is different. We never see him up on a war horse. We never see him yielding a sword or a spear. Jesus would not have a gun. In fact, if I get that painting, yeah. In fact, the most enduring image that we have of God showing himself to us as Jesus is this one, right? When we think of Jesus, one of the first things we think of is the cross. And this, this is not an idol. This is not something that someone created trying to explain what God might be like. This is an icon. This is the most real and authentic revelation of who God is. And this scene is the apex of that revelation. This shows us in no uncertain terms that this is a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Jesus didn't cling to his very literal God-given rights. He does the exact opposite. Paul again, this time in Philippians chapter 2. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And not only is he executed by people who tell a bunch of lies about him, he forgives them. Can you even imagine? 
It's incredible. This God is different. Before you ask, I'm not off track. <laughs> what does this have to do with the church? Can I get that painting up there one more time? Well, here it is. For the first 300 years after his death, burial, and resurrection, this is who the church emulated and followed. This is what guided their lifestyles, their choices, their relationships, what they did with their money, how they treated their friends, how they treated their enemies. It was this. For the first 300 years, the church's model of discipleship was the crucified Jesus. Paul centers his mission on it. He tells the Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does this mean? I mean, did Jesus Christ have the power to come down off that cross, arm himself with weapons of war, gather an army, and kill all the people that wronged him? Yes. I mean, do we, do we not believe that Jesus is God incarnate? Yes. He possessed that kind of power, yet he chooses this. He chooses this because self-sacrificial and self-emptying love that's displayed on the cross is the very nature of God. It's God's character. And it's actually paradoxically powerful, isn't it? I mean, when I look at this painting, it does something to me. On the surface, it's the rendering of a gruesome and sinister act that represents the worst in humanity. And it could certainly portray Jesus as weak and stripped of his power. Yet, yet, Jesus on the cross is ironically and beautifully powerful. Now, if Jesus had broken free of his torturers and executioners, and the enduring picture we have is him maybe taking that spear from that Roman soldier and putting it through his enemy's body, and then Jesus enacts revenge on all those who sinned against him, I guess we might have feelings of like vindication. Like, good, they got what they deserved. But there's no beauty in that. That's just history repeating itself over again. No one changes their opinions of who they are or the ways of being in the world because violence is used against them. That just makes the group on the receiving end more violent and is this endless cycle of hate that goes back and forth and back and forth. Jesus using his power to beat up his enemies doesn't solve anything. Jesus forgiving his executioners is extreme forgiveness that's unmerited and it's undeserved and it's ridiculous. It's almost scandalous. And it's this idea of extravagant forgiveness and humility that leads to new life that caused a significant number of people in the first century to abandon their allegiance to systems of religious elitism and empire and instead pledge their allegiance to the crucified and risen Christ. For the first 300 years of the church's existence, Christians did not misuse or abuse power because they didn't have any. Now that's not to dismiss the power of the Holy Spirit, which is foundational to our faith as Christ followers, but as it relates to a showing of strength in our world around us, be it militarily, politically, financially, they were on the fringes, and in the margins. And though they found themselves, on, found themselves on the underside of imperial power, they trusted in the kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. 
The teachings of Jesus told them that even if they had nothing, they still held immense value. The Sermon on the Mount was their playbook. They relied on each other because they had to. They weren't going to go and physically fight to gain power because the way of Jesus is peace. Father Richard Rohr says it this way. The early church was by and large of the underclass. It identified with the poor and the oppressed, and the church itself was still being oppressed and persecuted. The early church read and understood its history from the catacombs, literally from underground. Such a position will always give us a different perspective than that found in palaces. Apparently, it's much easier for people to see the humanity and Imago Dei and those who are on the margins of society when they are the ones on the margins. It's much more difficult to recognize the inherent value of all humans, especially the poor and the oppressed, or the outsiders, when we are in the position of power, in positions to overlook those who seemingly have nothing to offer us. In the year 312, the Roman Emperor Constantine, I think we have a picture of Constantine, maybe, there he is, he said that he had a vision before a big military campaign. And in that vision, he was told to have the word Christ, or Christos in the Greek, painted on the shield of every soldier. And the voice in this alleged vision told him, by this sign shall you conquer. Author Gregory Boyd summarizes what happens next. Constantine obeyed the vision and won the battle. The magic apparently worked. And so Constantine and his administration dedicated themselves to the Christian's God. Constantine legalized Christianity in 313, and because of its association with him, the religion immediately exploded in popularity. Within 70 years, it was proclaimed the official religion of the Roman Empire. Boyd continues, The cross-centered kingdom became a violent kingdom that embraced the sword. The church had become the church militant and triumphant. And the kingdom of God manifested in the crucified Jesus had become the empire of Christendom. And then Richard Rohr again. Catch this, this is so good. I'm sure Constantine thought he was doing Christians a favor when he ended official persecution and made Christianity the established religion of the empire. Yet it might be the single most unfortunate thing that happened to Christianity. Once we moved from the margins of society to the center, we developed a new film over our eyes. After that, we couldn't read anything that showed Jesus in confrontation with the establishment because we were the establishment, and usually egregiously so. Clear teachings on issues of greed, powerlessness, nonviolence, non-control, and simplicity were moved to the sidelines, if not actually countermanded. In our time, we have to find a way to disestablish ourselves to identify with our powerlessness instead of our power, our dependence instead of our independence, our communion instead of our individualism. Unless we understand that, the Sermon on the Mount isn't going to make any sense. Which is why it makes perfect sense that there have been so many disturbing acts committed in the name of the church. From the Crusades, to the Inquisition, to colonization, to slavery, to segregation, to megachurch scandals, to the SBC abuse cover-ups, and even to a violent insurrection that gave us images like these. 
When the establishment or the institution or the brand or the political party are given more attention, a higher priority than the Sermon on the Mount, then the church is in trouble. And I know I've referenced the Sermon on the Mount a few times, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you haven't read it, if you haven't read it in a while, that's your homework this week because the contrast is clear. And I think this leads us back to exactly the question we're trying to answer in this series. What is the church? It's been so convoluted and misused that we need to step back and sort of reboot. The church is not an institution for political gain. It's not a system that pins one group against another. It's not a building. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the people who love Jesus and obey the teachings of Jesus. Not those that simply admire Jesus or think he's cool or use him as a mascot for things he'd never endorse. No, the church is the people who arrange their lives around the life and the teachings of Jesus. And this gives me hope, and I hope it gives us hope. Because a group of people who love Jesus and follow his teachings could effectively change the world in the most beautiful of ways. And although we probably can't change overnight the damage that began with Constantine 1,700 years ago, we can begin to look within ourselves. Because power is sneaky. The allure of power in our culture is sneaky, and we all have to reckon with it. And that's kind of what I want to close with this morning. Because if we're honest, we all try to hold power in our own ways, don't we? And I want to have some space where we could sort of meditate on the ways that we tend to hold power in our own context. And I think it's probably healthy to spend some time with that juxtaposition of holding power for our own gain and then releasing it for the benefit of others. I thought of some examples, and we all might come up with some unique ways that we view this tension. But for me, like the ways that I think about my own pride, when I'm in an argument or a disagreement with someone, I exercise power over that person through my pride that no matter how they feel, I won't give them the satisfaction of my empathy or trying to understand where they might be coming from because that would mean I'd have to humble myself and lay down some of my power and enter into vulnerability. Or if I know that I've been wronged, I don't want to forgive that person. That might make me seem weak. And I don't want anyone to see my weakness because then I feel stripped of my power. But then I think about what Jesus did with power. Jesus, Jesus shows power paradoxically through self-denial and self-emptying love of others. And I'm reminded of the healing power of radical forgiveness. And that healing goes both ways. There's healing when I'm able to forgive those that are seeking that. And there's healing when I forgive. So when I'm forgiven and when I forgive. Both ways. Have you ever noticed that Oftentimes, when we read about Jesus like healing physical ailments in the Gospels, he also forgives them. Like there's this undeniable connection between forgiveness and healing. And another way I feel like I hold on to my own power is when I choose to exclude people. 
When I embrace that us versus them mentality that permeates our society, I forget that I have a shared humanity with each person that's created in the image of God. And when I conclude that there's nothing we have in common, I just decide I'm going to shun you and your way of life. And of course, there are healthy boundaries that we need to put up with some people in some situations. But there's also people who are just misunderstood, who maybe I haven't taken a moment to think about what life might be like in their shoes. And Jesus, man, Jesus could have been so exclusive. He could have embraced elitism because really there was no one better than him. <laughs> like, he was as good as it gets. He could have decided to pick and choose who's worthy. But he does the exact opposite. His teachings and his life destroy the us versus them narrative. In fact, the only people that can't be around him are the ones who perpetuate exclusiveness. And it's not because they weren't invited. It's because they could not stand the idea of hanging out with those people. It's our inclusion of others that make us disciples of Jesus. One more way that I hold on to my power is through my ego and my self-absorption. When I ignore those whose power has been suppressed, or when I willfully walk away from a situation where there's oppression and do nothing because I can, or because I'm privileged enough to have it not affect me, that's me holding on to my own power. But Jesus calls me to uphold the power of those who have been suppressed. Not to hold mine at all costs, lest I be uncomfortable. And I do realize this looks different for different people. But for me, personally, as a white, heterosexual, Christian man who has inherited an awful lot of privilege, this means that I seek out spaces where I'm able to enter into anti-racist movements towards reconciliation. Because I'm part of the group of people who has benefited from racism in our country. So it's my responsibility to help do the work of dismantling it, even though it might be uncomfortable. I need to welcome and include my beautiful LGBTQ brothers and sisters, because I spent most of my life holding power over them by demonizing them. And I examine the power I have to vote in this country. And I simultaneously look at many of my neighbors living on my own street who don't have that right. And I don't make my voting choices solely on what's best for me or my family or my bank account. I think about what might be best for their families, even if it costs me something. And that's not, that's not leftist or rightist or conservative or super liberal. That's simply following and obeying the ways of Jesus. You know, it's estimated that there are about 230 to 250 million people in our country who identify as Christian. Imagine what the church could do if Jesus was really its enduring model of discipleship. Imagine what would happen concerning gun violence, white supremacy, the ways that immigrants are treated, voting rights, Really, the sanctity of life of all humans. What if we could change the world so it looks more like the kingdom of God because of the church, 
not in spite of it. Isn't that the whole point? Maybe Christianity could be revolutionary again. Maybe it could start with us. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console and to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Father, may this be the prayer of your church, and may your kingdom come.